I'm grateful for the opportunity that the session has granted me to preach a series of sermons in the book of Ruth. Um, as Tim mentioned, the sermons have necessarily been preached over a period of time on Lord's Days when Pastor Bailey has been unable to, uh, on vacation or otherwise unable to preach. So um, uh, today's sermon is the sixth and final sermon. Some of you have not heard the prior sermons because uh, you more recently started worshipping here. Um, I'm sorry about that, but I think I'm hopeful that our looking at God's Word today will be a blessing for all of us together. Uh, For those who have heard the the sermons on Ruth and for those who haven't. Today we'll be looking at the story of Ruth in the larger picture of God's um, great work of redemption. Uh, Just one disclaimer, there's a number of Hebrew words and and phrases that are mentioned in the sermon. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, I want to make that clear, but I have confirmed the meanings of the words and phrases with someone who knows Hebrew well. So let's now look at uh, the book of Ruth, we'll read read the last half of the last chapter, Ruth chapter 4, and then we'll have two readings from Matthew. Ruth chapter 4 at verse 13, I'll be reading the ESV, let's hear God's word. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And then from Matthew chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 through 17. This is a genealogy. Uh, I thought of cutting it out, cutting out some of the, of the um, verses, but there's a wholeness to it that I, want, I think we want to get. Uh, and we'll see that as we open up the passage. Matthew 1 at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, 
And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Isaiah, and Isaiah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Hazor, Hazor, and Hazor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And then from the next chapter of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes and the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Here ends the reading of God's word. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, said Moses, the lawgiver in Deuteronomy. King Solomon would have agreed, noting as he did in Proverbs that it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. And the Apostle Paul, reflecting in Romans upon the greatness of God's work of redemption, exclaimed, How unsearchable are his ways, and his, how unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. God reveals and conceals what he is doing and what he intends as he chooses. There's much that he doesn't tell us. But in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, he progressively unfolds to human beings those things, those spiritual things that they most need to know. Progressively, he unfolds. For it's only in the full light of the New Testament that we can understand many things hidden or partially hidden in the Old Testament. Long before the events of the book of Ruth, before man fell into sin, Indeed, before the world existed, a marvelous plan was devised within the Trinity. A plan that would deal with man's sin, centering in the work of a great Redeemer. We read about it in our call to worship. Tim pointed out Ephesians 1.4. And since the fall, throughout the generations, God has been carrying out that plan, weaving together as he does so the lives of countless people and numberless numberless events. As we'll see today, 
the people of the town of Bethlehem, Ephrathah, the people of the book of Ruth, were unwitting but key players in that great plan. Today we'll see some of that plan unfold in an expanding perspective. First in Ruth 4, verses 13 to 17, the concluding scene of the story of Ruth, we'll take note of the conception and birth of Obed, a child born in Bethlehem. Then in the verses that follow, verses 18 to 22, which constitute a brief genealogy, we'll see the narrator enlarging that picture. There we'll see the place of Obed and his father Boaz within the family line of David, Israel's greatest king. Then in Matthew chapter 1, we'll see the picture dramatically expand with Obed and both of his parents and his grandson David and many others embedded in the family line of the Messiah. Finally, we'll see the many years of God's preparation and human anticipation come to fulfillment in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And then we'll have some concluding thoughts. So first, Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, Obed, a child born in Bethlehem. The story of the book of Ruth comes to a blessed conclusion when Ruth bears a son. His birth brings great joy to Bethlehem. Throughout this book of Ruth, we've seen the Lord, Yahweh, reveal himself as the God who acts on behalf of his people, working out in practice the details of his great plan. We see him acting again in chapter 4, verse 13, when Obed is born. The narrator of the story of Ruth doesn't just say, Ruth got pregnant and had a baby. No, the narrator says, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, gave her conception, and she bore a son. As we've gone through this book, we've seen God described as acting in various ways on behalf of his people. We've seen God described as acting in various ways on behalf of his people, though he himself never speaks in the book of Ruth. God is the invisible player throughout, ever present, but never seen. The chief actor, but always off stage. Understanding God's place in the story of Ruth is key to understanding the, the story. And although, we, although God never speaks in the text, we hear much about him from the people of the story who mentioned his name continually. Again and again, his name is on their lips, particularly in the many blessings that they ask him to pour out upon one another. There are no less than ten blessings in this short book. And here at the end of the story, when the women of Bethlehem hear of the birth of a son to Ruth, they bless God himself. Blessed be Yahweh, they cry. Verse 14. This culminating event, the birth of Obed, is so wonderful that the woman bless God himself because it is his sovereign working that has brought about this marvelous result. Women also pray for several blessings on others. We'll look briefly at just two of them today as we need to hurry on. In verse 15, the women pray for Obed to be a blessing to Naomi. Confident of God's blessing, they declare 
He, that is Obed, shall be to you a restorer of life. Literally, a returner of life. Naomi knew that word return only too well. She had used it again and again back in chapter 1. But all was dark for her. When all was dark for her and when she had nothing to offer but grief and grinding poverty to her widowed daughters-in-law, she said to them, Return to Moab. Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. The word word return appears no less than 12 times in that chapter. Always in the context of grief and loss. When Naomi finally gets to Bethlehem, she cries out to the women of Bethlehem in her grief. I went out full, and Yahweh has brought me home again empty. Literally, returned me empty. Her homecoming has been anything but joyous. Death has stricken her, and she cries out in her grief and anguish. The women of Bethlehem heard that cry of anguish and remembered it. And now in their joy over the birth of Obed, they pray that he will be to Naomi, who has known such trouble, a restorer of life, literally a returner of life. The literal words in verse 15 are, he shall be to you a returner of your soul. In clear English, he shall restore your soul. Beautiful words for a bereaved woman. Almost exactly the words that King David, Obed's grandson, later used to describe the tender care of the Lord, his shepherd, in the 23rd Psalm. He restores my soul. The women express their confidence that Obed will be a great blessing to this hurting woman. He shall restore your soul. Finally, the women praise Ruth, who has borne this child. And they praise her above all others. For Naomi could have received no such blessings without Ruth, who has shown such commitment to her mother-in-law. And who, the women say, is of more worth to Naomi than seven sons. The story ends with Naomi taking the child and laying him on her lap. Joyfully, the neighbor woman exclaimed, A son has been born to Naomi. It was the neighbor woman who named him and they called him Obed, which means servant. As the story closes, the narrator notes that Obed was the grandfather of David. And so these beautiful blessings at the end of the story lead us into the concluding section of the book, the last five verses, in which the author shows some of the greater significance of the story of Obed. We look now at the expanded perspective described in those verses which outline the family line of David. So this is Ruth chapter 4, the last five verses, verses 18 through 22. Family line of David. These verses constitute a short genealogy. It begins with Perez, the vigorous son of Judah, who was the fourth son of Jacob, from whose tribe the the Messiah would come. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, prophesied Jacob as he lay dying, nor the ruler's staff between his feet, 
To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Genesis 49. It seems pretty clear that part of the purpose of this genealogy is to underscore what Jacob had prophesied. The primacy of the tribe of Judah. That the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And this will be important as we move into the New Testament. This genealogy of Perez looks backward and forward. It's tied very directly back to the book of Genesis by the, way it is in, by the way it is introduced. This is the genealogy of Perez. Literally, these are the generations of Perez. These are the generations of Perez. If you've read much in Genesis, you may have noticed that the phrase, these are the generations of, appears again and again. The book of Genesis is actually structured Structured by the repetition of that phrase. The phrase or a close equivalent appears ten times in Genesis, starting in chapter 2. And each time it appears, it introduces a major development in the narrative. Chapter 2, verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Chapter 5, verse 1, the generations of Adam. Chapter 6, verse 9, the generations of Noah, and so on. This is what is called the Taladoth structure of Genesis. Taladoth being the Hebrew term for generation. The last Taladoth, which begins in chapter 37, is the Taladoth of Jacob. And it includes all that happened to Jacob and his sons through the end of the book. Now here in the book of Ruth, the narrator seems pretty clearly to be picking up where Genesis left off, carrying the story forward by means of the, of the Taladoth of Perez, Judah's most prominent son. This Taladoth makes clear that Jacob's prophecy about the primacy of the tribe of Jacob was indeed fulfilled. Fulfilled by the ascent of David of Bethlehem in Judah. Chosen and anointed of God and universally recognized as Israel's greatest king. Now about the arrangement of this genealogy of Perez. There are ten individuals listed here and if you calculate the number of years between the time of Perez and and the time of David you probably find that you have too many years and not enough generations. It appears that several generations may not be included here. We shouldn't see that as a problem because terms used in genealogies in the Bible are not necessarily used in the way that we would use them today. For instance, the term son can mean simply a descendant. Jesus is the son of David. Also, when we read in the Bible that so-and-so begot someone It usually means so-and-so was the father of that person. But occasionally, it means that so-and-so was that person's direct ancestor, not his immediate father, not his immediate progenitor. So you have to understand those things when you you read uh, genealogies. The genealogy concludes with David, and there ends the book of Ruth. But before we move on, a note about biblical genealogies. They're often regarded as just lists, lists of names. But the genealogy is not just a list of names. It's a cumulative historical record, a series of steps, each built upon the previous step. If one step doesn't occur, the series terminates. A family line ends permanently if someone dies without offspring. What would this genealogy, this family line of David, have looked looked like if Obed had not been born? Or prior to that, if Boaz had been unwilling to redeem Ruth, there would be no David. 
No son of David. End of story. No redemption for you and me. There's a godly line of faithful believers that runs right through the Old Testament. And it's good to recognize that at various points in Old Testament history, God preserved that line in rather wonderful ways, just when, humanly speaking, it appeared to be in danger of termination. The period of the Judges, when the events of the Book of Ruth took place, was one of those times, a wild and violent time in Israel, time when every man was a, did what was right in his own eyes. <clears throat> it was a wild and violent time, and in effect, <clears throat> also there was at least one severe famine that affected Bethlehem in that time. But through the events of that time, and particularly through the dedicated lives of Ruth and Boaz, God preserved that godly line the rejoicing of the women in Bethlehem over the birth of Obed takes on greater significance when you consider it within the context of what had been a threat to the existence of the line that led to David and then to Jesus Christ. The unfolding of God's great plan continues in the New Testament. We look now at the family line of Jesus the Messiah found in Matthew 1, 1 through 17. The New Testament opens with these words, the book of the genealogy, literally the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus, the name means Savior. Christ, meaning the anointed one, also called the Messiah. Jesus Christ, son of David and son of Abraham. And right away, we see Matthew following the Talgoth structure. The phrase, the generations of. He's writing approximately 1,500 years after Moses had authored Genesis. And he's writing in a different language, Greek. But he starts off with the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. Using almost exactly the, the phrase that Moses had used when he set out the genealogy of Adam in Genesis 5 verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ. Surely a striking parallel. And Matthew further emphasizes Jesus' rootedness in the Old Testament by declaring him to be the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew then delineates Jesus' family line, setting forth 42 generations in three groups of 14. Once again, some names are omitted. In verse 8, for example, where Matthew says that Joram begot Isaiah, or Joram was the father of Isaiah, we know from the Old Testament, the book of 2 Kings, that there were actually three generations, three named kings of Judah between Joram and Isaiah. This wasn't because Matthew was sloppy, or that he misremembered that period of history, but rather because he organized the genealogy in three groups of 14 to show God's orderly purposefulness in history. 42 generations from Abraham to Jesus. 42 generations from that subtle announcement God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
At the time, God provided no detail. But as one generation succeeded another, God revealed more and more about the Messiah to come. 42 generations. And 40 generations it was from Jacob's prophecy that the blessing would come through an individual of the tribe of Judah. We read it earlier. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, said Jacob, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. And 28 generations it was from God's even clearer message to David in First Chronicles. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, and his throne shall be established forever. First Chronicles 17. And God continued to unfold his plan, for through the prophet Isaiah, about 20 generations before the Messiah, he gave even clearer information. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's from Isaiah 9. More Old Testament examples could be cited. The final mention of the coming of the Messiah was given in the last two verses of the last book of the Old Testament, the book of the prophet Malachi. There God described the preparation for the coming of the Messiah in soul-stirring, if not alarming, words. This is Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Stirring words. The coming of the Messiah would surely be an event for Israel to prepare, to prepare for spiritually, to anticipate with godly fear. And with those exact words, the Old Testament ends. There are still about 12 generations to go, about 400 years. During those 400 years, there is silence from God. We'll pick the thread up again shortly. But first, I'd like to draw attention to several names in this genealogy of Jesus. The unusual presence of these names has been recognized for a long time. We should take note of them and consider their significance. Matthew's genealogy of Jesus begins with all the names found in the genealogy of Perez. But Matthew also includes in his genealogy four names which rather pop out four women's names. Tamar in verse 3, Rahab in verse 5, Ruth in verse 5, and Mary in verse 16. These names pop out because ancient Hebrew genealogies generally did not include women. Legal ancestry was reckoned through the male head of the family in each generation. So this is unusual. Why are these women mentioned? The inclusion of Mary is not hard to understand, as she was the true mother of Jesus, and her husband Joseph was not his actual father. She was a more significant person in regard to Jesus. But what about the other three? And there's one further thing about the other three. They're not just women, 
They're Gentile women. Tamer, from her name and from the context in which her story is described, was almost certainly a Canaanite. Rahab was certainly a Canaanite. And Ruth was a Moabite. This is surprising. Why are there three Gentile women in the genealogy of the Messiah? A number of reasons have been suggested for their being included, commentators of various thoughts. But it seems to me that perhaps the most significant reason may be that by including Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, God is giving an intimation, a little announcement that his covenant love, his work of redemption, will extend beyond the borders of Israel. The inclusion of two Canaanites and a Moabite in the family line of the Messiah points forward to the gospel going to all nations. Three Gentile women in 42 generations isn't many. But it's enough for God the Holy Spirit who inspired these words to make a point. The point being that God sets his love, his redeeming love, on whomever he wishes, male, male or female, Jew or Gentile. And in the New Testament, God made it clear, indeed, that all along, it had been his plan for the gospel to go to all nations. Jesus explained this to his disciples after his resurrection. Here is Luke's recounting. This is Luke 24, verse 45. This is Jesus teaching his disciples. Then he, that is Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. This was not a new teaching. It had been in the Old Testament all along, half hidden. But the disciples didn't understand it. So Jesus opened their minds to see what God intended. When they understood God's command, the apostles and those whom they evangelized and taught proclaimed the gospel in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and eventually to all the ends of the earth over the generations. Finally, we'll look at the incarnation of the Messiah. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. As we noted, for 400 years, there was silence from God. No prophet of God. No word about the Messiah. Silence. For a long time. Had Israel misunderstood? Worse yet, had God changed his mind? Silence was unsettling. Nevertheless, during those 400 years, anticipation was growing, growing among the godly. Anticipation that was fueled by an Old Testament prophecy about the place of Jesus' birth. The first whisper had been breathed in the book of Ruth, chapter 4, verse 11, when the people at the city gate prayed God's blessing upon Boaz. May you act worthily in Ephrathah, and be renowned in, Jerusalem, in Bethlehem, they said. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. Ephrathah was another name for Babylon. Excuse me. Ephrathah was another name for Bethlehem. 
but a name only occasionally used in the Old Testament. By the leading of the Holy Spirit, the people at the gate, blessing Boaz, used both names. It didn't seem significant at the time. But about 600 years later, the prophet Micah, in all likelihood knowing the story of Ruth, identified and drew attention to the place where the Messiah would be born by calling it by its two names for clarity and emphasis. In Micah 5 verse 2, the prophet says this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Bethlehem Ephrathah. This name identified unequivocally the town and the tribe of Judah, not Bethlehem and Zebulun, or any other Bethlehem. And Micah 5, verse 2, is the only place in the Old Testament where the two names appear together with no words in between, a double name. And by naming the exact place where the Messiah would be born and emphasizing it by its double name, Micah powerfully fueled anticipation of the coming of the Messiah during those 400 years when there was no word and helped prepare the hearts of the godly to receive it. And there was a great yearning. There was a great yearning for him to come. Luke Luke makes mention of all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Luke chapter 2, verse 38. Simeon and Anna are mentioned by name as those who were looking for him. And Simeon had been told by God that he would not die until he had seen him. Thus, anticipation grew and grew. When the wise men came to King Herod in Matthew chapter 2, asking where they could find the Christ, the chief priests and scribes confidently quoted Micah's prophecy in response. And at last, when the fullness of time had come, that is, the time determined within the Trinity before the earth existed. And then, when that time had come, God sent forth his Son. Galatians 4.4 He came. When the fullness of time had come. Forty-two generations and more from Abraham. Still more from Adam. Forty-two generations of waiting, listening, looking, hoping, trusting. He came. Emmanuel. God with us. It happened. Blessed be his name. In conclusion... The scriptures tell us that the work of the Redeemer was at the center of the great plan made within the Trinity before the world was made. In the Incarnation, God amazingly took on human flesh, became God-man to redeem sinners like us. How, how should we, how, how can we adequately, we God's people adequately respond 
to this truly amazing happening? <clears throat> well, for one thing, I would say that we shouldn't limit our thinking about the Incarnation to a couple of weeks in December each year. <clears throat> but as to how we should respond to the wonder of it, it seems to me that we should be driven to one response above all others, and that is to worship. When Obed was born, the women of Bethlehem praised God. Blessed be Yahweh, they cried. How much more was there reason for praise when the Messiah was born in the same, in the same time? And worship there was on that glorious night when the angel announced his birth to the shepherds, you remember, Luke tells us that suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The praise of the hosts of heaven, unimaginably glorious. And then, as Matthew describes, then came the wise men, quite clear in their minds as to why they had come, telling King Herod, we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when they came to Bethlehem, Matthew tells us, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. The incarnation of Jesus, the God-man, should elicit, elicit the praise of God's redeemed throughout the earth and throughout the ages. Our worship cannot compare with the glorious praise of the heavenly host. But we can and must join our praise and that thanksgiving to theirs. And like the wise men, we should fall down and worship. Adoring Jesus the Christ and presenting to him the humble, thankful and sincere offering of our hearts and our lives. Let's pray together. Try you, God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we fall at your feet in humble adoration. We praise you for that plan of redemption which you can see before the world existed and which you have been carrying out since the fall of the human race. We praise you in particular for Jesus Christ, very God of very God, who came to earth and took on human flesh to atone for our sins. From the bottom of, our, bottom of our hearts, we praise you for his dying love, which purchased that redemption. And we praise you also, that because he humbled himself by coming, by coming obedient to the point of death, that you highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Except we pray 
our humble offerings of praise and thanks, offered as they are, in the great name of Jesus, and for his sake. Amen.